I had this sort of really rad like intro, probably quoting some dumb movie. It was just some intro I had, and I just earlier today wanted to scrap it and just confess to the church um, wholeheartedly that I, 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 I struggle with prayer. I do. I struggle with prayer. Um, and that's not me trying to be like, oh my gosh, he's so transparent. That's not what I'm going for here. I wanted a moment, and I want tonight to be one of those things where we can all lay it on the table as we discuss prayer, that we can all just be very honest. At least I know I pray, and I never feel as if I pray enough, or I never feel that I pray the quality of prayer that I want to pray, that I want to pray, excuse me, or I never feel that my prayers are tempted to believe that they're not eloquent enough. I struggle with this as a pastor and with as a Christian. I, again, I, I was just writing down, I don't feel like I pray enough for my wife, for my kids, for the church, for friends, for neighbors, for enemies. And I was hoping by me just wanting to share that with you guys, I really want this to be one of those things where we can come together and go, I'm assuming for the most of us that, but yeah, I, I struggle with that too. Or that's a challenge in my life as well when it comes to the practice of prayer. See, to all who attempt to pray regularly, it doesn't take long for us to figure out that prayer is challenging or prayer is difficult or prayer is mysterious and often frustrating. Elizabeth Gilbert basically launched an entirely new religion, freeing women from oppression and the shackles of man when she wrote her enormous bestseller, Eat, Pray, Love. Has anybody read it? I, to be honest, I want to read it. I just haven't. I've seen the movie, and I was like, ah, that's enough. But I want to read it. I don't know if anybody's seen the movie. But a while back, a New York Times critic reviewed Gilbert's bestseller, saying, we see tons of eating, and we see tons of loving, uh, but where is the praying? See, within just the film version alone, I think this critic was pointing out that there's like two really awkward scenes where Julia Roberts is like trying to do like meditation prayer. And I guess it was really awkward and really short. And this very thing was very telling to the critic as she said these words in her article. She says, I was excited to see the film, but as I was looking for God, I ended up finding self-esteem instead. Simply, prayer has been spun into a web of purely internal consolation rather than transformation of God's purposes or for God's purposes. You see, as people who are on the quest for meaning and purpose in life or searching for God, maybe some of people are, are here tonight in that, that very same quest, one will find in this vast spiritual land of eating and praying and loving, again, that prayer is vague and that prayer is broad and that prayer is hard and that prayer is wildly unknown. I mean, it seems that prayer can be anything spiritual to any one spiritual in any spiritual place. It's like a giant Sedona, Arizona. Has anybody been to Sedona, Arizona? Holy smokes, it's pink Jeep tours, crystals, and dream catchers everywhere. <laughs> a huge study came out on religions in the United States a few years back, and it was in a book called American Grace. And the authors discovered that only 18% of Americans claim to not pray, leaving the high remaining percentage of people who claim to pray. I found that amazing. That's amazing, I wrote in my notes. That's amazing. That's out of billions and billions of people, they're all claiming to pray. 
To me, that was a billboard sign smacking me in the face that prayer is an important necessity of the human soul. Prayer is an important necessity of the human soul as 80% of Americans would agree. See, it's a necessity because man was created to converse and encounter God. That in its purest form is what prayer is. Man and woman were created to converse and encounter God. It's the, it's, it, I mean, it's in the marrow of our bones. The human heart, the human soul needs to converse its experiences. It needs to talk about its desires. It needs to converse about its fears. And sadly, we understand that for the vast majority, not everybody is praying to the God of the Bible. See, for the Christian faith, the Bible informs us that our prayers go to the Lord alone and no one else. No saints, no angels, no past or future figures. Christ opened the veil so that our soul can converse boldly with God alone. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, world-renowned theologian and outrageous preacher, uh, would actually take it a step further. He says this, prayer is the highest, highest activity of the human soul. Prayer is the highest activity of the human soul. So it's not only a necessity to the soul, but the highest activity of the soul. I mean, prayer alone reaches the stratosphere of our life in God. And it's no wonder why you flip through the pages then of these Bibles that are open before you with all these different stories and accounts. I mean, prayer just drips from it, especially with the book of Acts, especially with the book of Acts. I mean, it's Acts. I mean that anything wild or out of this world that happens within the book of Acts, Luke, the author, or anybody who was involved would be go, yeah, 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 because it was prayer. Something crazy happens. Like, yeah, we prayed. It came down to prayer, constant, unified, corporate prayer. See, when the disciples were waiting for the Holy Spirit to come, they're like, we're going to pray. When the disciples are like, we have a huge amount of decisions and ideas and things we need to do because of all this persecution and opposition. Pray. We have a small decision to make. Pray. It was prayer, prayer, prayer. See, friends, Acts shows us that the majority of God's recorded workings came from his people praying. And tonight, within the narrative of Acts 12, we'll take some solace in our struggle for prayer, recognizing that those in Acts 12 struggled as well. I mean, those who ignited the Christian movement struggled as well. Look at verse 1 of chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. So right off the bat, we have our very first recording of a martyred apostle. It's the first martyred apostle. James was one of the 12. And in an instant, in a hot minute, a king, who we're going to spend all of next week talking about, Herod, this king ends him. Ends him. You know what the people do? The people roar. The people freak out. Like the arena of the Colosseum, their thumbs are like down and their excitement is up. And as this is happening, Herod feels the hairs on the back of his neck tingle with pleasure. And then he gets an idea. To me, as I was writing that, I remembered, remember, remember that narration in The Grinchy Stole Christmas? 
Remember when he gets that stupid, like, smiley, spirally smile thing? Remember that? And the narration goes, then he got an idea, an awful idea. The Grinch had a wonderful, awful idea. Herod here has an idea, an awful, awful idea. Look at verse 3. It shows us his idea. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Herod's like, if if James brings this type of hype, what could Peter, the leader of the Christian movement at that time, do for my reputation? So Herod decides to wait until the right opportune moment. And he decides that's right after Passover. But why? Why right after Passover? Why wait? See, Passover, it's one of the great pilgrim festivals of the Jewish faith that would happen every spring. And Jerusalem at that time where they're at would swell from anywhere to 100,000 people to a million people. To Herod, can you imagine? He's thinking, can you imagine the volume of the cheering? To Herod, he's thinking, eternal praise. To Herod, he's like, the legacy of the king who killed Peter will be me. I mean, that, that'll be my title. So the sword is being sharpened, tickets are being sold, the crowd is growing, but notice how the church responds. This is important. This is how the church responds to what Herod is doing. Look down at verse five. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. See, on one side, violence and rage and pain and suffering and persecution and corruption. And on the other side, notice notice the conjunction word, but, but. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was being made. You see, the world can have the entertainment industry, the world can have the armed forces, the world can have the education system, the world can have the law, the state, the media, the government, the X factor, the cool factor, the fear factor, the wow factor. It don't matter. All of it combined cowers in comparison, cowers in comparison to prayer. In Acts 12, the church's first initial primal response wasn't, we've got to make bail for Peter. It wasn't, let's Alcatraz, great escape, this thing. It was prayer. It was prayer, the highest activity of the human soul. I was thinking when a huge majority reads this or sees this, I'm assuming the initial reaction could be, or perhaps would be, for the early church, what a cop-out. What a cop-out. For many, prayer is the ultimate easy way out of doing any good in a situation. See, for Acts 12, basically people are like, church, wake up. Your friend is in a prison cell hours away from execution. Wake up. And you're going to sit there and pray with your hands folded in your living room? Cop-out. See, nowadays, a disaster hits mankind, and we respond by creating a hashtag regarding prayer. 
See, for prayer, many, for so many, it feels like a cosmetic, placated answer to real issues. Now, don't get me wrong, for some it may be, but my hope tonight is that we see the power, power of prayer and its effects. I want us to come and see tonight that any jailbreak, get this, any jailbreak or any making of bail for Peter would have been significantly easier than the beautiful and arduous toil of prayer. I want Dr. Jones to smack us in the face one more time. He says, everything we do in the Christian life is easier than prayer. Everything we do in the Christian life is easier than prayer. See, Christians here tonight, do you agree with that? Maybe somebody's come up with a list. Well, no, this is harder. This is all right. Have you found this true of your own life? I know I have. Sometimes it seems like it's easier to teach like a three-hour Bible college course on the prophecies of Daniel than 15 minutes in prayer for me. Most would probably agree and say with full conviction that prayer truly is the hardest practice in following Jesus. And I love and get rocked by that this church in Acts 12, they spent days in prayer. I'm assuming not a constant stream of public prayer, but night after night, as Peter is in a prison cell and day after day, they are praying for one man's life, one man's release. And what's the description of this prayer? Look at this. Look at the description of this prayer. What did it say that Luke uses our author? Earnest prayer was made to God. Earnest prayer was made to God by the church. Now get this, this word earnest. Earnest is only used three times in the entire New Testament and two of those times are in the context of prayer. Does anybody have any idea when the other time was it was used? Luke uses this exact word in his gospel as he describes Jesus praying in the garden. This is what he says. He wrote, and being in agony, talking about Jesus, he prayed more earnestly. And then what happened? And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. That's committed, intentional, straining prayer. Perhaps it's in order for us, I was thinking, in order for us to realize the depths of this type of praying, I want us to just take a moment and root out any weeds of legalism or religiosity or any false notions that have twisted prayer into something it never should have been. Because we're building towards something here tonight and we can't get there until we remove the rubble of past perceptions and false notions of prayer. See, I hope tonight we're inspired to pray. Obviously, yes. In this chapter, I want it to be inspiring, but we must be first to and be inspired to pray correctly. Meaning fully aware of the crucial nature and of the challenging nature that prayer is. See, prayer is the beautiful cohabitation of crucial and challenging. See, many of these challenges and struggles with prayer come from a lack of understanding versus the actual practice itself. I know it has been with me. Again, false notions with prayer. So I want these struggles to be realized, acknowledged right now, not so we can like lick our wounds. Like Following Jesus isn't a piece of pie. I don't say these false notions that we just say, man, prayer is really hard. I say it so that we can endure. 
So that's why this challenging and crucial nature is here. We're going to talk about it just for a minute or two so we can fight on in prayer so that we can be described as a church in earnest prayer. So here are three, some of the biggest false notions regarding prayer that I believe are helpful and pertinent for us, for the culture of collective, for us. We all know that prayer is, I've said it a bunch, a mystery. We all know that prayer is frustrating at times. We know that prayer is awe. We know that prayer can be headaches and beauty. And here it is, prayer can even be boring. I said it. I was just thinking, I'm assuming, if I was going to say prayer can be boring, there's going to be somebody here who wants to punch me in the face. But if we were honest, and I didn't say it was boring all the time, Hear me out. We need to acknowledge in our hearts and mind that at times prayer can be boring. But here's my point. The monster that so easily haunts the Christian's prayer life, false notion number one, that prayer for some reason needs to be exciting and intense and brimming with energy all of the time. That is a complete false notion. No regular prayer life will be exciting, intense, and brimming with energy all of the time. That just can't be. That just won't be. There are intercourses of prayer where at times it's burning hot, kind of like this room, where it's burning hot. And there'll be other times where it's just a few lit, dim coals. There'll be times where our eyes are filled with tears. And there'll be times where our eyes wander to the clock. There'll be times where we're like, God, I know your presence is here. You're here, God. And there'll be times where our prayer life is, is like, do you even exist? Just know a regular prayer life and regular prayer meetings will ebb and flow. Not every time we have a prayer meeting or sit down to pray, will it be like a Dwayne the Rock Johnson movie? It just will not be an energy, energy, energy. The second false notion with prayer that I want to talk about for us, for our church would be that we pray when we're qualified. We pray when we're qualified. Meaning, I'm going to pray when I'm not distracted. I'm going to pray when I'm not angry. Or I'm going to pray when I'm not tempted. Or I'm going to pray when I'm emotionally this or that. I was thinking today, think of it this way. It's essentially like cleaning your house before you know, your mother-in-law comes and visits or something. Before family comes and visits. No, 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 no. God must see me at my best. No, 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 no. God must see me dignified. I must remove the dirt and sweep the floors and do the dishes and scrub the stains. But if that is our approach to prayer, this will only result in a lack of honesty in our prayers. If we don't tell God about our honest emotions, fears, and desires, and we only speak these like fabricated one-liners telling him things that we just think he wants to hear about our life, our spiritual, our prayer life will wither. It will wither. And the last false notion, and this I think is, I think this is a good one. A prayer isn't passive. Prayer is not passive. It's not hashtag creating a little folding of the hands. Time of prayer, passivity. That is not earnest prayer. That is not earnest praying. You want to hear something insane? This is so insane to me. 
This will really add flesh to what I'm trying to get at tonight. Again, we're working through this. Bear with me. German theologian and catapult for the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther, he said that he prayed with such vigor. He prayed with such vigor. He would consider his time of prayer as if he was trying to conquer God. He would pray with such energy, not passivity, that he was trying to conquer God in his prayers. Now, don't get me wrong. All of our prayers should end with a heart of, you know, but thy will be done. But prayer is never a passive folding of the hands. Earnest prayer is the exertion of seeing his kingdom done on earth as it is in heaven. And I hope once we sort of break through these brick barriers or false notions, then we'll finally be able to be what we are, what we need to be in prayer. I just, I want us to be a praying people. I want us to be a praying church, a church that is lit up in prayer. If you think about it, if you guys remember, and we've said it a few times here and there, I mean, this is how this community got started. Just curious, who was there in those praying days in our living room? All right. How about when we got to the church when we outgrew my living room? Who started there? Jenny, you were there. Is your hand raised? Oh, okay, cool, cool. <laughs> it's like your husband's there. <laughs> I just remember those times. That's how this community started. That's how we want to continue this community on the devoted and earnest prayers of its people. Not just Pastor Casey's praying, of its people. Now, when I say that, please don't think, wow, you know, it sounds like we've arrived, or this guy's a, he's a hero, he's prayed, give him a medal. We wanted to spend 12 months of prayer before we did anything else, because if this church was going to make any kind of an impact, we knew it would begin in prayer. We just knew that. Think about this. Those who have been praying with us for years now, since September 2014. For those who've been praying with us for a while, this is so nuts. The baptisms tonight, are they not answered prayer of your earnest request that you made years ago? Let's not be so naive to think that if people aren't praying, this wouldn't have happened. We believe in the power of prayer. This is, this is astounding. This is amazing what we're seeing tonight. Ah. Oh. See, our hope, is, our hope for this church is that it continues to be our guttural response to everything. My computer shut down, Lorenzo. Well, let's pray. We need a venue space. Let's pray. This person's in trouble. Let's pray. Let's pray for all that we do. Let it be a primal response just as it was in Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12, these people are freaked out. They are freaked out. Wouldn't you be, James, a dear leader of theirs, was just murdered, horrifically murdered. And all these people are remembering that the last time a Christian leader of theirs was slaughtered, it did not bode well for the entire church. In the long run, it did, but in the time, it was terrifying. It would make sense if they're nervous, and dare I say some of them are even growing in helplessness, believing that imprisoned Peter is a lost cause. I mean, they're placing floral arrangements for the funeral type phone calls. I mean, Peter isn't going anywhere. Look at verse six. Peter isn't going anywhere. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, 
bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were, uh, excuse me, sentries before the door were uh, guarding the prison. Now, just a fun side note. If you noticed, uh, Peter is sleeping, and this just pumps me up. Peter's passed out. If you're familiar with the Bible or the life of Peter, you're not surprised by this at all. Many important things were happening, and you would often be like, where's Peter? He's over there sleeping. It happened a lot. <laughs> Second, here's, here's what I want us to get. Peter was assigned with 16 guards. 16 guards. The Romans had divided the watches into four guards with three-hour shifts. Two of them were chained to Peter at all times. Back in the day, what was normal is one would be chained, but we have two chained to Peter. I mean, Peter's got double the flavor, double the fun. As well, two of them were outside of his cell. Friends, this is San Quentin, like Midnight Express, Nicolas Cage, Sean Connery on the rock-style prison to the max, maximum security. But if we stopped and cooled our jets, wouldn't we all just go, why? Why? I mean, he's a fisherman. He's a fisherman. He's not Nick Cage. Why? 16 soldiers watching one, watching one fisherman. What's he going to do? I mean, I was thinking, what's he going to do? He's like, I'm going to bait and tackle my way out of here. Why in the world would Herod be this frantic? Well, because if we've learned anything from the book of Acts, it's that the prayers of these Jesus people are stronger than iron chains. It's that Peter can't be caged. Now pay attention because this is where things get so good. Verse 7. And behold... An angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell from his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. He did so, and he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. We're busting out. Oh, mama. First, let's just get this. Peter is so passed out that the angel strikes him. (laughs) And this word struck carries a punch to it. Nobody picked up on that? Bryce, where you at, bro? Let me try it again. This word struck carries a punch with it. Whatever, forget you guys. This stuff's gold. But seriously, this word, this incident, is it's full of literal, like, the angel in this wording means he punched him as if he was in a fight. The angel just knocks him, hits him hard. He's playing congos on his kidneys. He's touched by an angel, whatever you want to call it. Now, I don't know about you guys, but uh, what is your reaction when, especially if you're married, what is your reaction when your spouse touches you or something in the middle of the night? Does everybody, yes, yeah, see? Does anybody else freak out? I feel so bad for my wife. She'll just like barely touch my shoulder. Sweetie. You're snoring. What in the world? Like, immediate reaction. I swing fist if anybody wakes me up. One time my son was in there and it wasn't good. Or does anybody have the mom? Remember kind of trying to talk to your mom in the middle of the night, early in the morning? Does anybody have the mom? You come in as quiet as possible and you could just speak in like a mouse voice and they would jump and gasp every time. 
Anybody else's mom's like that? Cool, just mine. Either way, either way, Peter is blasted and gasps awake. And as he's trying to catch his breath from the death blow, he literally opens his eyes in in a lit prison cell and he hears, let's ride, let's ride, Peter. And clearly Peter was in his birthday suit. So the angel tells him, put some clothes on. Like the angel almost has to dress him. Put your sandals on, Peter. Put your robe on. And the two of them miraculously escape into, in, into the night and, and avoid, I mean, just by mere hours, Peter's execution. Uh, this is where the 1700s, uh, 1700s poet and hymn writer Charles Wesley, I, find, I think, found great inspiration when he wrote, uh, I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Friends, I cannot even begin to unveil the poetic beauty of all that is happening with the fact that Peter is freed during the celebration of the Jewish festival of the Passover. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's so perfect. It just can't be made up. See, the Passover was this reflective celebration where God's people are remembered from days long ago where they were freed from bondage like Peter. They're supposed to remember that their life was headed towards the gallows and saved like Peter. They're supposed to they remember that they were rescued like Peter. And in the Old Testament where Moses, you guys remember that classic line? Moses told the Pharaoh, what did he say? Let my people go. I mean, you can almost hear the same cry towards Herod with Peter. If you remember, the Pharaoh did not heed the words of God, not heed the words of Moses, and plagues from the depths of the earth and from heaven fell upon all Egyptians in the Passover. And on the night of the 10th final plague, God told everyone, you will be spared if you take a spotless lamb's blood and you paint it, on your door, on the doorpost of your home. See, if you did this then, then death would pass over you and your firstborn. If you think about it, in a very real way, the blood of the lamb saved the Israelites from death. It's so beautiful. Now, here's the thing. If you guys remember, you've been with us. Stephen was killed. James has been killed. And Peter is on his way to being killed because they preached the conclusion, the conclusion of that exact message. The content of their message went from the Passover lamb then to Jesus is a Passover lamb now. That all can escape bondage of sin and oppression and spiritual death by believing that there is saving power in the blood of Jesus. See, in prayer, man is at his highest because he is with God. And man is with God because of 1 Peter 3.18, that Jesus died, his blood was sprinkled, so that Jesus could bring us to God. This is why when we pray, we say very loudly and very boldly and very humbly, in the name of Jesus, amen. That's not like saying abracadabra. See, not praying for things done in my name. I'm sick of doing things in my name. But praying for things that can only be done in the name of Jesus by his power covered by the blood. 
And it was this new message this new, with this new meaning, with new repercussions and with new life that enraged, enraged the Jewish leaders to the point where they found delight in the death of all who would conclude that the Passover in its fools is a foreshadow of Jesus Christ. They were enraged. And because of the uncompromising severity of Peter's claims and the uncompromising severity of Herod's desire for fame, Peter must move quickly. Look at verse 9. And when he went out and followed him, he did not know what was being done by the angel. Like if it was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. So Peter's out of it. He's literally dressed and he's running out and he's thinking, this is a vision, this is a vision. Is this for real? And he thinks he's dreaming this whole thing up and you can't really blame him. Verse 10, and when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them in its own accord and they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel left him. So they're running. Gates are opening by themselves. The streets are dark. And as Peter stops in the middle of the road to catch his breath, he realizes, I am alone. I'm all alone. So what's he do? Look at verse 11. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So Peter's back to reality, verse 12. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked, when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. So Peter heads to what would have been their venue, basically. Something like this, where they were gathering. And the Mary mentioned here is not Mary Magdalene or, or the mother of Jesus, but we know of her that she's clearly wealthy and has this massive house, and she's got a servant girl. And Peter heads, heads there first, assuming rightly that the church collectively would be praying. See, two rhythms of prayer for the Christian, alone and assembled, private or public. And they're praying collectively, earnestly. Earnest prayer was made for one man. A whole church gathered like this for the release of one man. Them giving their best and sacrificing for one man. I heard a pastor say it recently, there is no greater need in the church today than for Christians to recapture the lost art of praying together. And again, agree with that or not, we do need to recapture the lost art of praying together. Friends, I just want to beat it to death that there is power, there is power, there is power in prayer. Do you believe this? I mean, does your life reflect this? See, if the church desires to see God do crazy and awesome things amongst us, then we are to approach him together. Collective church, there is power in praying together. Let's be sober-minded again, even thinking about this, to the, what reality could have been, what the reality could have been if the church wouldn't have prayed for Peter. There's power in prayer. New York pastor Tim Keller helps frame it this way for us. He says, if we believe that God was in charge and our actions meant nothing, it would lead to discouraged passivity. If on the other hand, we really believed that our actions changed God's plan, it would lead to paralyzing fear. Ah, if both are true, 
However, we have the greatest incentive for diligent effort, and yet we can always sense God's everlasting arms around us. Basically, mystery lies in the truth that our sovereign, providential, infallible God says you have not because you ask not. You have not because you ask not. These two facts are true at once. And that what will remain, I mean, that's going to remain a mystery for the rest of our days. But I don't want us to get caught in the weeds. Know this. This is proven time and time again in the book of Acts, that the world around us in mystery and in wonder can and is affected by prayer. The world around us in mystery and in wonder can and is affected by prayer. Reminding us prayer is powerful. Prayer is effective. Even if we forget that in the midst of prayer, which we will, we will at times, if we forget that, it does not change the outcome. It does not change the outcome because the power in prayer is not dependent upon your faith. It's not dependent upon how beautiful and poetic one's prayer can be. It's not, it's not the power is not the longevity. It's not in the briefness. It's not who prays. Oh, you're a pastor. You have to pray for the meal. No, I don't. The power in prayer is supplied by the one we pray to. This is illustrated in verse 13. Look what happens. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. Just so everybody knows, this is meant to be funny. Luke thinks he's being funny. This is supposed to be funny. There's like two times in the whole Bible where it's like, let's put some jokes in there. This is one of those times. We're supposed to look at this and go, oh, Rhoda. Classic Rhoda. (laughs) So what's happening is they're in this prayer huddle. They're crying out, God, release Peter. And they keep getting distracted by this incessant, ongoing knocking. (laughs) This is distracting. And Rhoda keeps entering. Peter's at the door. Rhoda, stop it. <laughs> Again, she hasn't in all of her excitement, which is so awesome, opened the door yet. Meanwhile, Peter is so worried outside. He's got to be one of the most famous people in all of Jerusalem. And so Peter is like, come on. <laughs> then finally, look what happens. Verse 16. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. Basically, they saw him, and they were shocked. Surprised, blown away, besides themselves. And they all start screaming. And what does Peter do? Look at verse 17. But motioning with his hand to be silent, he described to them all that the Lord had brought him out of prison. That the Lord had brought him out of prison. Get this. This This is pretty awesome. Peter stopped by literally so that the church can just be encouraged. Peter knows that the church needs to be reminded that prayer is powerful. These baptisms tonight are reminding us as a church that prayer is powerful. Prayer is effective, that God hears you, that God is moving. And he said, he, look, at, look, at, look at, continue verse 17, and he said to them, tell these things to James and to the brothers And then he departed and went to another place. And then just like that, Peter is gone. Peter very lonely and very humbly 
walks into the darkness, and he goes into hiding. And nobody knows exactly where Peter's at. Sure, he's going to show up for like a small flicker of a moment in Acts 15, but for the most part, if you've been with us for however long, like a year we've been in Acts, it's been Peter, and like that, he is gone. Let's finish our story. Let's finish the verses that are part of the story. Verse 18. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter and Herod here. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent some time there. Just shows you what kind of guy Herod is. All right, kill them and I'm going to take a vacation. That's literally what happens. So we'll get into Herod next week. But collective church, I want to wrap it up this way. And I want to do it very, very, very practically and very tangibly. With hearing all that we heard tonight, three things we would ask of you. Three things I would hope would fuel the prayer culture of who we are. I would just say basically, please listen to these and then let's act upon them. Please listen and act upon them. The first would be, our actual prayer gatherings, corporate prayer. When we assemble, when we pray together, we have these quarterly and we have it every Sunday right outside this room at 3.30 p.m. I think the tendency for churches as we get some time under our belt is to think that prayer gatherings become all of a sudden an extracurricular activity to the routines of the church versus prayer gatherings being the lifeblood of the church. We do not pray because it'd be fun to fill up your calendar. We pray because this church will die. Or worse yet, we will die internally and keep on existing externally. That is even a worse death. Collective church, we must, 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 have to, have to, have to, have to, have to pray together. We have to pray together. Our prayer meetings are of the utmost importance the utmost importance. I just think about the beauty of corporate prayer to pray to God and to to speak boldly on behalf of one another. That's awesome. Or to be sitting there corporately and to have somebody else pray upon your behalf. Intercession in the immediate corporate setting. Hearing different aspects of what Jesus is doing in the body. Corporate prayer is awesome. The second thing that I would just ask, and it's very quick, but I would love for this to be a huge part of just who we are as a church. And it's, everybody's going to be like, oh, I don't know about this one. But I, I would just ask, for the shaping of a prayer culture, can we be a church where if a person comes up and expresses any distraught fear or need, boom, right there. So let's pray right now. Let's pray right now. Let's pray right now. Can I pray for you? Can I pray for you right now? And we put our hand on, on their shoulder. And it doesn't matter how eloquent. doesn't matter how, how beautiful doesn't matter who you are. Let me pray for you right now. And lastly, I want us to be a church that asks, asks, asks all the time for prayer. I just want us to ask like crazy. Oh, I would love that. I've been called out in my uh, discipleship group recently for not asking enough. You want to know why? Because I struggle with prayer. You want to know why? Because I far too often go, I can do it. I want to stop trying to do things in my own strength. I want you guys, I want us to stop doing things in our own strength. 
Let us be an asking culture. Do you know, do you believe, do you get that God wants to be asked? He wants to be asked. Ask me, he says. You know, every week on that back wall and on that back wall, we have a prayer team who wants to be asked every week for for what they could pray over you, for you, with you. We have discipleship groups every week. Hopefully the majority of you are in discipleship groups. They want to be asked as well. And here is mine even, I'm asking now, on behalf of your pastors, on behalf of your pastors, please, please pray for us. Please pray for us. Please, 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 please pray for your pastors. We are fallible men. Have you met Lorenzo and I? We are fallible men <laughs> and in tremendous, in tremendous need of your prayers. I want us to be known as a people who pray, collective church. Let's do that now. Let's pray.